0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and I'm joined today by two great guests for a special discussion about the world order in 2030. First up is Ambassador Ishii, who is the Japanese ambassador to NATO, but uh, is also somebody who has Big thoughts about the, the future of the world and uh, has a, a very strong voice on these issues in Japan, but also internationally. And also, uh, secondly, is Volker Stanzl, who is a ECFR council member, a senior advisor to our Asia program, but is also a long standing German public servant who has served rarely as both ambassador in Beijing and in Japan, as well as being political director in the German foreign ministry. We are here talking about Europe and Japan in the 21st century, and I want to turn to you first, Ambassador Ishii, and take you forward to 2030. Can you tell us what the world order is going to be like then?
1: Yeah, before doing so, I I think I need to talk about that uh, we are destined to cooperate with each other, because uh, I think I would argue that uh, Europe and the United States and the democracy in in Asia, including Japan and ROK, Republic of Korea, are the only pillars in the world which are both capable and willing to work towards the peace and stability in a global scale. So I think, you, you know, the EU, Europe and uh, and the United States created NATO, and uh, Japan and US created uh, alliance. So we need to strengthen the cooperation with EU and uh, Europe and Europe. Uh, the, democracy in Asia. That is a starting point. Having said all this, I think your question is about 2030, right? I think my quick three points. Number one, I think at this moment, US, I believe US is still the only superpower in the world. They are part of the solution. They have to be part of the solution. Their population is still growing. They have a capability for doing so. I think it's still the, the only superpower in the world. It's it's not that we are living in the multi actor world, number two. But 2030 may be a turning point of that situation. Up in 2030, we guess we estimate that the sp- defense spending of the, Japan, uh, the United States and China will become more or less the same. By then, by the way, Japanese defense spending will be one tenth of them. So, I think how can you expect uh, not only the China but the, the United States to take the opinion of the country which spend only 10% of their defense budget seriously. That is a real issue that has impact on the future balance. And I'm sure Europe will be in, in that equation. And uh, so that, that's the that's second point. The third point is uh, 2030 is also the time when we will see a more enhanced presence of India. I think India will become the world number one population. I think the economy is going to grow. So, I think, I think uh, after 2030, we need to come up with a solution of the equation among US, China, India, and if Japan make uh, enough efforts to stay in power, Japan, that makes it quadrilateral. And I do hope Europe will come in that picture.
0: So you hope Europe, but you don't have much confidence in Europe being part of the future. We, we, we need them, I think. What about, what about you, Falker? How do you, do you think that you buy this image of the world in 2030? Or do you think Europe will have such a, a small role in it?
2: Well, <laughs> 2030 is not that far away, right? 15 years. 15 years. We'll all still be there to see mm. whether we were right or not. Um, that's, that's one thing I, I agree with, uh, with what uh, Ambassador Ishii just said, uh, which is the need to cooperate. Um, but, but I come from a very, very different uh, view, which is uh, somewhat more pessimistic uh, than yours, Masa. Um, see, I see the liberal order that we've grown accustomed to, that actually we depend on, because countries like yours, European countries, depend on a free world order, free world trade, a democratic order. So we depend in our very existence uh, on this kind of order. This order is endangered. And it's endangered by a development which is not only negative, but also has a lot of positive aspects. That's what I call the multi-actor world. We have so many more actors that impact Uh, the system, international system that we have, that it is very difficult to calculate where things are going. So these are non-state actors. Al-Qaeda, of course, is a very bad example. It's a good example for something bad that's happening to the world order. Um, But Al-Qaeda has been acting in ways that has, that we were not prepared for. So it impacts the world order that we've been used to, but the same is true for something that we... uh, basically regard as something positive, IT industry. We all live with it. We benefit from it. We see that a lot of companies make a lot of money with it. You say, look at Silicon Valley. This is all great at the same time, of course, it impacts the way uh, governments work, states work. If the algorithms in um, the stock markets go wrong for whatever reason, then the very existence of countries, companies, uh, is is endangered. So you have that kind of world and we're not prepared for what's going to happen next. Who was prepared for ISIS, a pseudo state, to turn up all of a sudden and come to the very heart of uh, our liberal world order to Paris uh, with its terrorist attacks? These are things we're not prepared for. So. While there are positive aspects for this new kind of world we're confronted with, as well as negative aspects, we need to be um, able to adapt. We need to be flexible, we need to react well. So far, I think we can say we were able to do that. I'm not sure we will be able to do so in the future. So that is why I think cooperation between countries that share the same kind of interests that I just described, liberal world order, free trade, etc. And the same values that I would just call the values of the Enlightenment. That share these values and interests should, must work closer together, and that will be true in two thousand thirty. I'll say something about India and China happily, but not before Mark
0: Well it's funny listening to the two of you because <laughs> you, you basically Germany and Japan are these kind of two uh, twin countries um that came out of the second world war under american tutelage um but germans live in in venus and volker you're talking about all sorts of non-state challenges to the world and you see political solutions mainly emerging actually the, we
2: live on Mercury, which is uh, <laughs> mercury yeah mercury yeah mercury being the god of trade
0: yeah yeah oh, absolutely okay. Um, but uh, uh, but Japan seems to live more in Mars, so your solutions are all about military spending and, and the American role. Um, and yet, uh, so for you, it's very much a world of states that uh, that you're kind of worrying about, whereas Volcker is worrying about the kind of world of, of non-state actors. And maybe that's also... I mean, one of the, the big questions is whether um, we are going to uh, see a a, ch- a big change in the relationship between europeans and uh, a, and Japanese and other Asians at the moment because the economic relationships incredibly strong the values are are, are very similar but our world views seem to be pretty different um, and uh, f- for what you were saying ambassador Ishi uh, you know europeans You know, it's true that France and and Britain sell a lot of weapons to Asian countries. The French like to talk about themselves as as being a Pacific power because, um, uh, but it's pretty small. I'm afraid Germans do sell a lot of weapons too. (laughs) Germans sell a lot of weapons as well. But do you think that, Volker, maybe you stick with you for a bit longer. In this world where the Japanese are looking at India, they're thinking about China, they're developing stronger links with Australia and other countries as a way of of trying to to balance uh, China's emerging Military power. What what role do Europeans have in that world?
2: Well our prosperity depends on what's happening in Asia quite clearly so we depend on on uh, things going well in Asia and we cannot be sure that they will if you look at uh, the instable situation in uh, the South China Sea the East China Sea uh, between India and China There are a lot of factors that are extremely volatile and that endanger peace there, which would affect us extremely negatively. So if I stressed um, uh, the point uh, Ambassador Ishii just made about cooperation, I include cooperation with Asian countries uh, politically and uh, possibly also on security questions. It is something that um, is
0: extremely taxing for us Europeans. But what does that actually mean, cooperation on security questions? Apart from saying that we want the maritime disputes to be resolved in a peaceful way and according to the International Rule of Law. That is
2: not cooperation. Hmm. These are statements. Yeah. Uh, and, And I think we all need these statements, but they are not... If you speak about cooperation, that's not what it means. But let's take concrete examples. You have countries uh, in the East Asian, Southeast Asian region, which are hardly able um, to um, uh, take care of the security on their own. So, capacity building is something that needs to be done. Uh, that should be done by the Americans. I think they are preparing to do that. Uh, I think it will be done. Which by the countries Japanese. are you
0: thinking of? Uh, Southeast Asian countries, like for the Philippines, for example, for example. Vietnam. Yes. Uh, and Indonesia and in and Indonesia, Indonesia. Yeah. so Germans uh, what have sold, sold the them way, a lot of tanks a- the Indonesians. Pardon me. The Germans have sold the Indonesians a lot of tanks. When was that? A couple of years ago. <laughs> uh, a lot of years ago. <laughs> but, which seems strange because <laughs> it's a maritime nation with thousands well, of islands. No, but let me. Let me. <laughs> okay. let me let <laughs> I mean, I'm these sorry. are these are uh, industrial <laughs> decisions, right? Uh, yeah. I'm sure, no, no, I'm sure that that's exactly what Indonesia needs to defend itself from. Yeah, yeah. from okay. <laughs> let, me, let me jump Sorry, in. Sorry, I was not both that
1: right, okay. uh, uh, decision. Let, let me jump in. I think, number one, I, I don't want you to misunderstand my, my priorities. Our priority, number one, is to live happily and prosperously together with the largest neighbor, that is China. That's what we've been doing the past 2,000 years, and we'll continue to do so. I think that is the bottom line. I think we, we have no intention, and we simply cannot contain China, right? So we have to live with that. It's only that uh, we don't want to be told what to do. We just want to maintain the independence, and if there are things which we think are important, we want to put us in a position where we make it happen. So I think that is the bottom line. So that's one thing. Second thing is that uh, I, I take your point about multi actor World, but you know, actor world as you suggested is not always a good news, right? We have a terrorism, we have a radicalism, we have a weak government, and so on and so forth. So, happily or unhappily, this is the area where we, Japan and Europe, have to work together, because I think that is mainly happening in your backyard, Africa, Middle East, yeah. and if you deep the situation in Sahel as they are. I think you end up having uh, Afghanistan number one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. Which means you always have to involve Americans. And as Mark you suggested, I think the U.S. is now—it's uh, not the abundant abundant resource; it's a limited resource. U.S. goodwill, U.S. Uh, capabilities—it's a limited limited resource. So they have to be choosy. So I, I think we 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 need to prioritize and. Uh, I, I do believe that what's happening in Africa is a potentially a very, very disruptive, very important uh, issue where we, Asians, and uh, you, Europeans, can cooperate to make things uh, different. If uh, let,
2: me, let me, Sorry. Yes. Let me just coming on that uh, initial point of yours. we, and obviously you meant we, Japanese, have lived with uh, China with some exceptions. Uh, uh, for 2,000 years. And you were ambassador right.
0: in both countries for yes, quite a lot of that time. Right. And He's I heard, in, to say and I heard, in, heard in both countries that uh, <laughs> <laughs> mainly about the exceptions of these 2,000 years, not so much about the majority of these years.
2: Sorry. But what I mean is uh, other countries. My point is, has also been the interdependence of countries. So if Southeast Asian countries, Mark mentioned the Philippines, Vietnam, if these countries are in danger of coming like it used to be in history for a long, long time, under the hegemony of a new Chinese uh, world power, uh, that is something that will create enormous frictions. Because these countries have come uh, accustomed to the liberal world order. They regard themselves as sovereign countries, defending themselves, and suddenly being subject to the largest country, strongest country in Asia, is something they will not accept. So there will be, there will be a lot of frictions in in Southeast Asia, and that will involve Japan, even if it wants to be live in peace for the next two thousand years, with its uh, largest <coughs> neighbor. I'm and cannot- about the United States, uh, I mean, they are still of, obviously the guarantor of the security of sure. the whole region. But they are what somebody called the reluctant sheriff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes,
2: and. You can see it under Democratic and Republic administrations, the gradual withdrawal from taking on the responsibility globally. If that trend compin- uh, continues, you as Japanese will have to carry much more responsibility. So will have, uh, so will the South Koreans and the Southeast Asians, and it will involve us
0: as well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about us um, Europeans for a second in, in that thing, because it is pretty clear that Europeans have got high economic stakes in what happens in in Asia. We are the number one or the number two trading partner uh, to most Asian countries, actually, including China. Um, and we trade a lot more with ASEAN than Japan does, I think. Um, uh, and uh, so, economically, we have big stakes. Obviously, if there's a nuclear war. Um, between China and America that would kind of have uh, an impact on us. So if there's a war between Japan and China it could be pretty uh, devastating for our economic prospect. But it's less clear that we have um, very many tools. I mean, Volker, you talked a bit about ways of building up the local capacity of actors so that they can deter Chinese action in there. But at the same time there's a limit to how far that can go because China is going to outspend the Philippines and Vietnam, you know, 20 to 1, 30 to 1 by 2030. Is it, um, yeah. But it's also, so why so. why do you think we should want to get it? I mean, you know, if this is going to get nasty, I mean, in, I was in Washington a couple of weeks ago and everyone talks about the um, Thucydides trap. Um, and around your time of 2030, it's obviously going to be a very tense period because China is going to be, will have bigger horizons in terms of what it expects, in terms of the strategic space it has. And there'll be many people in Washington saying, look, this is, we, we, we need to put down a marker, we need to draw some red lines. There'll be quite a lot of tension at that particular period of time. From a European perspective, does it make sense for us to kind of pile into what is going to be already a pretty um, uncomfortable and tense military security space? Uh, or would we do best to, to sort of stay out of it and, and trade with everybody and maintain our relationships? And maybe you know, carry on selling weapons to, to different people. <laughs> <laughs> <Term> <laughs> <statement>. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, but
1: let, let, let me sort of comment on your stat- on your statement. Number one, there's a big if, big if is whether China continues to be stable and prosperous. Yeah, We hope so, actually. I mean, prosperous and stable China is the easiest China for us to deal with, right? Yeah. So we do hope, we, we don't hope for the destabilized, uh, you know, confused uh, China. But I- this is a big if. So yeah. if, th- th- that that is a big if, uh, uh, based upon which you, you made your argument. Second thing, I think, in, in surviving with, with China, with which we have a 2,000-year year experience, I think the best way to do it is to, to make sure that both countries, the public, understand that we do share the common interest. Not common value, but common interest. Yeah. Right? Trade. China has been the number one trading partner for us for years now, right? I mean, more than the United States. And the same is true with you. So I, I think environment. Right? Yeah. I mean, in, in Can your- we
0: maybe go a bit deeper in trade? Because, you know, one of the really striking things that's happened in recent times is that there used to be quite a big separation between the economy and the security spheres. And by and large, there was economic engagement and then there was balancing in, in military terms. And that's what Asian countries did, it's what the US <coughs> did. But what's happened in the last few years is actually quite a lot of competition in the economic sphere as well. And you've had very, very aggressive things like what happened with rare earths um, and the the sanctions which the Chinese took out against the Philippines over, over the maritime issues. But you also had... People now hedging against those sorts of actions. So a huge fall in, I can't have the figures in front of me, but in Japanese investment in China, it went down by 40% or something after the... Um, after we have divers, di- diversified the source of... But it's got to do with the
2: wages. In the,
0: the, it's partly the wages. to do with the wages, well, yeah, but it's also, the wages. It's also <laughs> about geopolitics. T- the, the whole no, no, idea no, of no. TPP it was deliberate, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this big mega regional trade deal, was designed to keep China out of it. Now, that was partly for economic reasons and to do with the Chinese economic model and the role of state-owned enterprises. At the same time, it is striking that Vietnam, which is hardly a kind of poster child of liberal economics, is allowed into the TPP, which makes one think maybe there is a no, geopolitical. Yeah, and President Obama did say when it was launched <laughs> that, um, that, you know, we can't let China make the rules for the twenty-first century. Okay. That's why we need TPP. Uh,
2: you're trying to, to construct a conflictuous situation <laughs> <laughs> that just doesn't Typical exist. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know him, better. Uh, uh, which just doesn't exist. You asked, uh, do you want? Do we want to get in an uncomfortable nasty situation? But I mean, What? What? what well, where are the controversies actually? Of course, we have, we have uh, controversies between the U.S. and European countries. With Japan, with Korea, that's a fact of life, right? Uh, what actually has gotten wrong so far? The history of Chinese uh, Western, and with Western, I include uh, Japan, Western relations since the beginning of the uh, uh, economic reform policy has been a tremendous success story. And it has become more conflictuous uh, lately, and... We see the possibilities of, we're talking about 2030, right, of things going wrong. But until then, there are many, many possibilities and we have tools to rectify things. So the reason for us, Europeans, to get into this uncomfortable, not yet nasty space is exactly that. It is to get things right, to have an impact on China with which we... um, cooperate cooperate to a high degree and profitably for the Chinese, for us, and for the Japanese. And if it's, it, it doesn't make sense, sorry, uh, that you, you should be the one to, to mm. say something, but I mean there's 40% decrease in, in investment, uh, analyze it correctly. And it's not just trade policies, it's not boycotts or whatever. Well it's much but, more complicated. Yeah.
0: But it was a myth. Yeah. I mean Ambassador Ishii, when we were in Tokyo in fact when I was in Tokyo with you, Fokker. we spoke to people and well what the <laughs> no, people joking. I spoke to said that there are some things which are structural changes in the Chinese economy, wages going up, it gets more yeah, expensive. Basically. But then there were also worries about the fact that <coughs> Japanese factories were having to close down because their people were protesting outside them and they were burning them down. And the two things go together.
1: Excuse. Here's just an excuse. Yeah, I, I guess the decline of the Japanese investment uh, is caused by, for many, by many different uh, causes, reasons. Yeah. But uh, rather than talking, rather than detailing that uh, too much, I think one point is TPP. I, I think, I, I do believe that TPP is not to isolate China. It's more than rhetoric. Yeah, it may s- looks like it, but uh, I think that uh, when you know the when uh, United States first came to us asking us to be part of TPP, one of their logic is that listen, I mean, you know, the, the, the ultimate aim of ours is to bring liberalize Chinese market, and uh, how can we do best? It's a question. So the best way to do it is for the economy number one, economy number three, economy join together to create a very ambitious. Uh, Free trade agreement, and then open, opening that to everybody, including China. I'm not saying China is going to join now, but I think that is the best way to ask, force, or encourage China to be part exactly. of this regime. Yes. So, I, I, definitely, this is not an, an attempt to isolate China. That's the first point. Second point is, of course, we have to do engage and hedge. I mean, we need to engage China, but we we have to hedge them. So, I think. But important point I was trying to make uh, before you intervened was that, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, we do have a shared interest. So our job is to make sure that that is understood by both countries, the yeah. public, basically. And sea and lines of communication is actually sounds like a very conf- confrontational but it is actually the shared interest right we share the
0: same thing communication so yeah. nobody
1: wants to create but do you think a- the
0: united states is is going to be comfortable with china patrolling the sea lanes of communication as long as they do it i mean that that should be
1: great i i, I think uh the did uh, it that and we, for that, we need... And Japan as well? As
2: long as they don't claim sovereignty over exactly. the whole area. I think as long That's as they, the
1: they abide by the, by the common rule, that is the, 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 the freedom of uh, safety of
0: navigation, yeah. according to this, the Anchors. That, that is great, that is great. The UNCLOS uh, is it? the UN Convention, what is it, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea? Law of sea. the Sea, yeah. yeah, that's right. So, so I think that Which America
1: I'm, hasn't ratified yet. Well, I think, but they have de the facto accepted uh, they the knowledge of it, yeah. yeah. So, And that's where, once again, India comes in. I think we have a vast, uh, we means uh, Japan, Europe, as well as China and the United States, share the same sea. of communication from Japan, you know, East China Sea, South China Sea, Malacca Street. So, uh, you know, that's, that means we need to bring in the huge participant that is
0: India. So Falka, maybe end with you on uh, um, and your kind of vision. If we do want to get all of these players to work together, um, how are we going to organize that? Because uh, Asia is famously uh, both the fastest growing part of the world. It's the part of the world where military spending is growing the fastest as well. There are lots of institutions there, but it's the bit of the world where you have the least stable um, uh, security architecture. Yeah,
2: we in Europe love to talk about uh, new organizations uh, setting up uh, forums, platforms, etc. Well, in Asia, they just create new institutions all the time. Uh, None of them Uh, neither what we do nor what the Asians are doing has been particularly successful. Um, So I I, I would leave it looking at 2030 with what Massa has just explained. Look at the whole region, look at the countries uh, you have to take into account, and then go practically, pragmatically about talking with these countries, getting them together, especially those countries that share the interests that we've just identified, I think. And, of course, the interest in upkeeping the norms of the liberal world order.
0: And do you, I'll, I'll ask you one last question. Um, do, you, do you think that uh, we're going to get to 2030 without having a kind of war or some sort of conflict, given how uh, much tension is built into that part of the world? 2030, yes. And what do you say, Ambassador Ishii? 100% yes. Wow. So we a- need to do that. An optimistic end to the, to the discussion. So that brings us to the end of a uh, fascinating discussion. We've got one more thing to do, which is our bookshelf segment, where we recommend things that we're reading at the moment. So, Volker, why don't I turn to you first? What, what are you reading?
2: So much on the internet that uh, it's very difficult to uh, say something particular. But I think I liked uh, Reinhard Wolff's piece on uh, emotions as an... Um, uh, in, um, Important factor in international politics. He's, uh, by the way, a specialist of East Asian politics. Reinhard Wolf is a professor of Frankfurt University.
0: Fascinating. What about you, Ambassador Ishii? Oh, do visit the uh, ECFR website and uh, you'll find many good articles, including a fantastic new uh, paper by Volker Stanzel.
1: Yes.
2: Which course. is, what's it called, Volker? Danger on the High Seas. Goodness. And w- maritime conflicts in East and Southeast Asia.
0: Goodness. And we also have a series of uh, papers looking at the EU-Japan relationship from many different uh, national perspectives. There are links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website, www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. And uh, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion from Volker Stanzel and Ishii and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye for now. And the editor of ECFR's podcast is Caterina botel Azzinaro and our researcher is Ulrike Franke.